0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp. I'm here on the New Books Network's History and Native American Studies channels. We're here today with Ian Saxene. He's a visiting assistant professor at Bridgewater State University. Earlier this year, he published Properties of Empire, Indians, Colonists, and Land Speculators on the New England Frontier. Again, published earlier this year, by NYU Press. Welcome, Professor Saxine, to the show.
1: Hi, it's great to be here.
2: So, can you first tell us about a little bit about the uh, selection of the cover for Properties of Empire?
1: So, uh, this cover image comes from the seal of a map that was made in the early 1750s, to uh, commissioned by the Pajewski, uh proprietors. Uh, to, to sort of give uh, visual proof of their land claims. And the bottom right seal of this map has these, uh, these two indigenous men uh, standing there and they have these sort of early modern speech balloons. And one of them is saying, God has granted this land to us. And the other is saying, God has planted us here. And I thought, uh, and that, that image really crystallized for me what this project is about which is the, uh, the sort of ironic uh, nature of the fact that you have these English colonizers who are justifying their own land claims uh, and their own property titles by rooting them in indigenous land rights.
2: So what prompted you to study the Wabanaki, the people of the land of the dawn, and Wabanaki through the 18th century? who were they and what was the donland
1: so the story that initially grabbed me was uh, a regional one and so i had been uh, interested in indigenous history for uh, for some time and the the sort of maritime northeast of northern new england and uh, maritime canada really fascinated me because this was an area that was a contested frontier longer than almost anywhere else in, in North America, except for perhaps like the Southwest. And so uh, to me, this offered uh, a really fascinating opportunity to look at various processes of uh, colonization that that took place over an extremely long period of time. And of course the, uh, the Wabanakis themselves, uh, they were the the people who were living in the maritime northeast and so we should uh, we should clarify that the uh, the Wabanaki refers to both a, a political grouping, a confederacy of linguistically and culturally similar groups uh, who officially crystallized in the uh, formed in the in the mid 18th century at least as far as when we begin to have Really uh, reliable, consistent uh, documentation uh, that we can trace what their what their actions were, although they they may well have been doing things before then. Uh, but then Wabanaki also is a, a sort of collective uh, ethno linguistic term to refer to again this this collection of similar peoples uh, in the region, and so this inc- this includes the uh, the otherwise known as the Maliseet, the Penobscot, the Kennebecs the uh, Amara Skagen uh, and the Pig Whacket, among others. And so uh, Wabanaki is a, a term that these people use to describe themselves. And it means people of the first light or people of the dawn land, uh, referring to the fact uh, very clearly that the, the sun rises in the east, and this was the easternmost part of the American landmass that they lived on. Now, in terms of uh, studying the Wabanakis on this project, I should say sort of chronologically, I became interested in the time between the sort of peak of, of Wabanaki the military power and success, at least as, as evidenced in the records, um, and and the time period when they... Uh, when the uh, when colonizers sort of completely succeeded in uh, in defeating them, and so I became interested in this sort of transitory uh, period of time in the, in the sort of early and mid eighteenth century, when the Wabanakis uh, were were sort of gradually losing military power, but they remained a formidable force, and they were contesting their land and sovereignty uh, against lengthening odds. Uh, and we should clarify, of course, that even after uh, the British Empire finally defeated the Wabanakis, this did not mean that they they vanished or, or no longer sort of lived in the in the maritime northeast. We should be clear that they, they've endured to this day.
2: What were Wabanaki concepts of property in the common pot? And how did these concepts compare to 17th and 18th century English ideas of subsistence competency and overlapping use rights in what would become Maine,
1: so uh, the common pot was what uh, what many uh, Wabanakis and other algonquin speaking Native Americans called the uh, the land that they lived in, the, the land and waterways. And so the common pot was a, a phrase referring to the lived reality of the fact that everyone uh, everyone was living in this shared environment. Uh, and there was this finite amount of resources, and so if somebody fished all the fish out of a given pond, there's just not going to be any more there anymore, right? And so everybody is sharing from uh, from this common pot, right? Now, oh, Wabanaki concepts of of property, and we should we should note here that when we talk about Wabanaki concepts of property, we mean on the sort of most basic anthropological term. Uh, the Wabanakis did not seek to acquire uh, resources for, for profit. Uh, but they absolutely, uh, like, like all human societies, uh, they did have, uh, they did practice uh, various limitations, right? They, uh, they, they, they decided which groups of people had access to which resources and, and individuals did not have sort of untrammeled rights to go wherever they wished. And so the, the Wabanaki, uh, concept of property could sort of best be described as that uh, they were the sort of custodians or co-managers of of land and waterways in cooperation with other uh, humans, animals, and spiritual entities. And uh, as far as uh, breaking down uh, the sort of divisions of, of use rights and guardianship among Uh, Among wider political communities, Uh, the evidence suggests that during the the early modern period, uh, Wabanaki's uh, divided up uh, areas of of land and water um, between sort of extended family bands headed by a usually male uh, lineage leader and uh, the, these family groups practiced sort of discrete use rights uh, to hunt and, and fish and, and fowl uh, in particular areas, and then they also farmed for part of the year in many cases in a, in a larger village, which the Wabanakis uh, would, would gather in during certain times of the year. Now, the, the band leaders did not have sort of individual ownership or rights over these uh, particular tracts of land that their families used. And so uh, they did not have the right to alienate uh, this, this territory uh, or admit new people without consulting with the larger political unity, uh, sorry, the larger political community. And so when this head of the family died uh, and a sort of new, again, usually sort of a patriarch uh, or a male uh, leader, although not always, would take over, uh, they would have to then sort of uh, essentially gain permission again from the the, the, the larger community uh, overall. And so um, when differentiation differentiating this uh, against the English tradition, we should, uh, we should emphasize that uh, the difference was not absolute. And so absolutely compared to the Wabanakis, the English uh, tradition of property uh, allowed for much greater individual land ownership, uh, but this was not absolute. So uh, in the English legal tradition, uh heads of household generally would would own land in freehold which is the sort of most uh thorough title that somebody can have in the english common law system Uh, but when you hold land in freehold that doesn't mean that the political sovereign does not also control the land and so the english still uh, landowners still owed taxes and things of that nature right this is different than a lodial title that exists in some monarchies where, uh, where somebody has absolute ownership of land, sort of free and clear of anything, right? Uh, but the, uh, the most defining feature of English legal tradition, even apart from other Europeans, was that uh, in English common law, improving the land, which is what they call doing things like farming in a certain way, uh, building fences, building homes, raising livestock, right? Improving the land, above all, if there's no other claimers, proves ownership. And uh, England stood apart from France and Spain and other early modern European nations in in the fact in this feature of their law. And so the English, uh, as we'll see, they also uh, took this legal interpretation and sort of weaponized it against other uh, civilizations who did not use the land in the same way that English people did. So the English sort of infamously would say that the Irish were not really uh, owning or using their land properly because they did not live in one place all year round necessarily like the English did, and they did not farm like the English. And the English uh, brought these interpretations with them to the Americas, uh, where they this is the lens which they interpreted Wabanaki uh, concepts of property. Uh, through.
2: Can you entangle the dizzying, uh, quoting you the d- d- dizzying succession of proprietary proprietary overlords, maybe like the lords proprietors that the English en- that the English encountered when they entered the Donland, as well as the bundle of contradictions that was e- that was English land policy during the 17th century, and if possible in your response, um, please elucidate your th- your three deed categories from the book.
1: Uh, sure. So the uh the first uh, much of the 17th century in new england uh particularly in maine is this just sort of revolving door of different people uh claiming uh what is now the state of maine and then taking it upon themselves to to issue various titles to people and so the the really abbreviated version of this is that uh, King James I granted what's now Maine uh, by right of discovery, so-called, to the Plymouth Council of New England. They turned around and granted it to uh, a gentleman named Ferdinando Gorges, uh, who then renewed his patent from James's son Charles in 1639. Gorges then turned around and granted uh, various portions of his new, uh, his new territory to friends of his who immediately began engaging in legal disputes over who owns what and where various boundaries are. And so then in 1647, two of them, George Cleve and Richard Tucker, won title to an area between the Saco and Kennebec rivers. Which, the, which became known as the province of Ligonia, which ironically enough was named after Ferdinando Gorgias's mother, Sicily Ligon, even though these two men were, were ultimately fighting for him, with him for title. Then Massachusetts Bay Colony got in on the fun by seizing the province of Maine outright between 1652 and 1658, uh, basically forcing various uh, early Maine towns to, to say that they were part of Massachusetts. Uh, the Mainers did not care for this. They appealed to then yet a, a, another English king, Charles II, uh, who gave it who gave Maine uh, back to the Ferdinando Gorges heirs, uh, largely to to swipe at Massachusetts, which was often uh, at odds with, with with Charles. Maine ignored the or sorry Massachusetts ignored the king and took Maine back in 1668. Uh, but then Charles. Uh, did not give up, and he once again recognized claims of the Gorge's heirs, and so finally, uh, the Massachusetts Bay Colony bought title to the province of Maine from these heirs uh, and appointed Thomas Danforth to administer the area as the so-called District of Maine in 1680. Uh, All of these people, while while they claimed title, were issuing various deeds uh, and and, and titles to, to various colonists, right? Um, Danforth himself issued a number of titles in the 1680s, and then yet another king, James II, revoked the entire Massachusetts charter and tried to combine uh, all of New England and and New York into the dominion of New England. Uh, The New Englanders did not care for this, and as part of the wider so-called Glorious Revolution— uh, they overthrew this dominion of New England government in 1689 and received a new charter in 1692. So, as you might expect, right, many colonists found buying land from the Wabanakis to be a much more straightforward and less confusing way of acquiring title. Uh, It also had the added benefit of the fact that uh, the Wabanakis really did live on the land and they really did have a right to be there. And so these colonists who wanted to take up in what became Maine, they had to uh, give the Indians something because otherwise they would not be able to survive and thrive. Uh, The Wabanakis, even though they had suffered from uh, losses to epidemic diseases they still greatly outnumbered the early colonists for uh, for most of the seventeenth century and so they had uh, they had the ability to to kick out unwanted trespassers if they if they so desired and so because of this political confusion on one end and the reality of indigenous land rights on the others uh, New England colonists gradually come around to uh, accepting the reality of indigenous land rights. And this is where uh, they broke with uh, the, the prejudices and, and ideas that the sort of first generation of, of, of colonists from the metropolis brought with them. And this is summed up uh, most clearly by John Winthrop, the, the well-known second governor of, of Massachusetts Bay Colony. And he said, speaking of indigenous property rights, he said, well, what is common to all is proper to none what he meant by that was that all of these various well-delineated uh, use rights that the, the Native Americans practiced among themselves, uh, that were invisible to, to people like Winthrop, weren't real and these were all just common land. And so therefore anybody could take them, right? And of course this was, this was a mistake. And so by the late 17th century, New Englanders were increasingly uh, arguing that well, these deeds that we had to sign with the uh, the indigenous uh, owners of the land are are the real thing anyway. Now, when we when we sorry, would you like me to uh, to now elaborate on these these three kinds of deeds?
2: Yes, please.
1: Sure. So uh, when the natives and newcomers entered into these early land transactions, uh, there's there's sort of three broad categories, right? Uh, and the first of them. Uh, is this sort of broadly consensual agreement uh, in which the relevant indigenous claimants uh, appear to have been aware of what they were doing. Um, And these agreements generally involved invitations to the newcomers to live on discrete tracts of land while reserving significant indigenous rights throughout. Uh, these, These agreements were generally signed by multiple lineage leaders they were ratified over long periods of time and these agreements expressed clear physical boundaries rather than being expressed in something like acreage, which of course meant nothing to the Wabanakis, right? And so uh, these kinds of deeds can be best summed up as uh, the Wabanakis, uh, they were not fully permanently alienating tracts of land, uh, especially initially, they were, it was more like they were saying, come on over and join us, and they were admitting uh, people into the common pot. Right. Uh, then there's a second uh, category of early deed that was clearly not consensual. Right. Uh, this includes a handful of forgeries. Uh, one of them became known as the Brown Claim, for example, um, or just bad faith agreements. And the most notorious of these was the uh, so-called Madakawando land session of 1694. Uh, and this was a this was a transaction in which uh, a major sagamore or chief uh, among the Penobscots. Uh, in order to, uh, in part, secure the release of various family members that were held hostages, he signed a unilateral land session with the then governor of Massachusetts, uh, William Phipps. Uh, and he didn't consult anybody, and he doesn't appear to have told anybody about it. Um, and extra proof that this was not a sort of widely accepted deal, was that when the Penobscots found out about it, they immediately repudiated both the agreement and Madaka Wando himself. Um, and his uh, his time as a, an influential leader among the, the Penobscots came to a rather abrupt end. And he showed up at the door of a, a French fort uh, far, far away uh, several years later, uh, basically saying as much and that he sort of lived the last few years of his life in this... Uh, what appears to be some sort of a retirement, okay, uh, and then the third category of deeds, which is uh, the most troublesome for scholars, is sort of more ambiguous. Uh, and that category is most importantly taken up by a number of agreements signed between uh, the 1640s and early 1660s along the Upper Kennebec River, and these appear to be, at the time anyway, efforts by competing investors to secure fur trade rights with the Indians. Um, and the uh the the relevant Wabanakis would, would sign these these various agreements with these uh with these investors. Uh, but then at the beginning of the, the period of warfare uh, between the, the British and the Wabanakis in the 1670s, the Wabanakis drove the handful of claimants who had taken up on these lands off of them, and they appear to have believed that those claims were extinguished. Uh, but later heirs, above all to the uh, company called the, the Clark and Lake proprietors, uh, behaved as though these original deeds had allowed for extensive colonization and, and building actual towns on this land. Uh, And so those those sort of belong in their own category. And so it was these sort of three categories of deeds which then form the backdrop of these extended uh, attempts to relitigate what exactly had been decided uh, largely along the coast of what's now Maine during the 17th century uh, up until the late 1600s.
2: slash NBN50 to get 50% off. For our listeners, please discuss the causes and consequences of the 1675-78 and 1688-1713 to 1713 Anglo-Wapanaki Wars, the 1693 Submission, and the 1713 Treaty of Portsmouth.
1: So broadly speaking, this, uh, this is a period of time when, uh, to put it bluntly, the Wabanakis realized that their strategy of incorporating the newcomers into the common pot was not working, right? Uh, the, the British, uh, they become the British after the, the 1707 Union of, of England and Scotland, we should note, um, the, the British could not be uh, trusted to maintain these reciprocal relationships, which were the goal of uh, of the Wabanakis throughout this period of time, uh, when the Wabanakis uh, engaged in in commercial activity with with neighbors uh, of of whatever type, uh, the idea was that all relationships needed to be reciprocal to some degree. That doesn't mean they're all entirely equal, but that all all players have a part to play. And so uh, these early generally. Uh, fairly acted deeds contained, right? Uh, they, they contained obligations that the the early colonists had to fulfill. They had to, uh, at times, give annual gifts or payment to the Wabanakis they'd signed these agreements with. Um, and increasingly, they, they began to, uh, to neglect their obligations under these agreements. Uh, newer arrivals to Maine uh, were, were also not respecting these earlier agreements. And then finally, uh, the, the the colonists themselves began to engage in acts of violence against their, their Wabanaki neighbors. And so the spark for all of this was in 1675, uh, a massive conflict in southern New England, uh, known as, as King Philip's or Medicom's War, broke out. And uh, colonial authorities... Uh, became mistrustful of pretty much all Native Americans. And so they were afraid the Wabanakis were going to participate in this broader, what they viewed as a a mass pan-Indian conspiracy. So they began demanding that the Wabanakis turn over all of their weapons, uh, and they began treating them like enemies. Uh, And then uh, sort of most dramatic of all, uh, there were several colonists who just murdered uh, the the child of, uh, of an important Wabanaki leader named Squando. And so they, they tipped over a canoe uh, carrying one of Squando's children uh, believe, uh, to see if, according to the, the sort of uh, racist myth along the frontier, that, that uh, Native American children would float. And of course, the child drowned. Um, and so all of this led to eventual Wabanaki sort of joining in this uh, uh, fighting back against uh, the colonizers who were uh, violating uh, these reciprocal relationships. And so uh, the sort of immediate result of this warfare was a dramatic emptying of the frontier of colonists uh, pretty much everywhere east of Wells for several decades. The Wabanaki uh, military power was considerable at this time, and they, they en- enjoyed uh, pretty dramatic military success. Um, and so uh, the Wabanakis, uh, unlike the southern New England Native American groups, the Wabanakis won uh, their front in, in King Philip's war. And they forced uh, New England to, to sign a, a peace treaty in which uh, they acknowledged that they were in, in Maine as, as guests of the Wabanakis. And, they, and every family had to pay a certain amount of corn every year for the privilege of being there. Uh, but again, very soon after, uh, the colonists began to uh, to neglect their obligations again, uh, and so uh, war broke out once again in in 1688, uh, and continued with only several breaks uh, until 1713. Once again, emptying the frontier of most of its English colonists, but also many of the Wabanakis living there as well, uh, as under the pressure of of uh, of Massachusetts uh, attacks, uh, many Wabanakis moved to the St. Lawrence Valley or other much more distant villages and so lived as as refugees. So what ended up happening was, is that during these war years, uh, a number of Boston-based investors bought up many of the refugee claims to their land in Maine, often at, at quite cheap prices as well. And so uh, by 1713, uh, several land companies had either formed or were in the process of forming to, uh, f- to take advantage of this new opportunity to recolonize the main frontier under the, under the more direct and orderly supervision of these large land companies. Now, uh, this period of warfare ended in 1713 uh, by a treaty signed in, in Portsmouth. And the 1713 Treaty of Portsmouth uh, agreed essentially to a status quo uh, from before the the wars. And the sticking point, though, is that both sides agreed to uh, what the treaty stated was uh, the the British could return to all lands formerly settled. And so to the Wabanakis, that meant the colonists could move back to the towns that they had abandoned. Uh, The British uh, interpreted this, especially now that with the rise of the speculators, the British interpreted this to mean that they owned all of the land they claimed through all of the relevant deeds that they chose to wield, regardless of whatever quality those deeds may have had, right? And so... Uh, another important consequence is that the Wabanakis shifted their strategies to dealing with the newcomers. So they they gave up on the ability the ability to sort of invite these newcomers into the common pot. Uh, but clearly, the strategy of uh, entire of eviction uh, that they tried during the wars uh, was was not fully working out either. Uh, the Wabanakis suffered greatly during these wars due to disease, uh, dislocation of families and subsistence patterns. Uh, and so the warriors were not really pleasant for anybody. And so by 1713, the Wabanakis switched to a strategy of containment, uh, policing their, their border uh, with the British colonists, acknowledging coastal incursions, but believing that, uh, that they were going to draw the line once and for all. Now, finally, uh, during the wars in 1693, uh, besides signing away uh, some of uh, some lands of the Penobscots right in the in the Saint George's region, uh, Madakawando also signed a submission, what, the, what Massachusetts called a submission in 1693, um, and this was the first time that uh, that the Wabanakis that any Wabanakis on paper. Uh, signed anything that claimed that they were subjects of, of the King of England. And so uh, there's still a great deal of, of sort of controversy about how much this really mattered. And it is, it is my argument anyway, uh, in, in Properties of Empire, that uh, these the submission and claims of sovereignty, uh, which oftentimes, as we'll see, the, the, the British uh, would insert into treaties without telling the Indians. I would argue that these claims of sovereignty and even outright lying about it didn't matter as much as long as the uh, as long as Massachusetts authorities were not trying to enforce it. In contrast, uh, property uh, disputes over property are very difficult to uh, to have continued sort of parallel uh, understandings of uh, for very long. And so. uh, Indigenous and and British sort of different interpretations of property had to be sorted out much more directly than any sort of differing understandings of
2: submission. How did the uh, legal chaos of the Dominion of New England and Andrews here, coupled with the near total destruction of Maine frontier communities, convince Massachusetts Bay colony leaders to ground their system of property based on the reality of previous and ongoing native land ownership. Further, how and why did ambiguity in subsequent land title legislation result in depictions of the Wabanakis as the guarantors of property within Massachusetts?
1: So this is where we get to the, the sort of ironic situation where even as the relationship between Wabanakis and colonists on the Dawnland frontier was about as bad as it could get the uh the importance of indigenous property for the the Massachusetts legal system and, and system of property continued to rise and so what happened was is that governor uh Edmund Andros uh when he when he assumed uh, the governorship of this the newly created dominion of New England in in the in the mid 1680s what he did is he tried to uh, restore what he he believed to be a sort of uh, order uh, and and, uh, and and regularity of all of the the, the land titles in Massachusetts Bay and in the Dominion of New England, and so he wanted all of the all of the landholders uh, and, and especially those who had held land titles from Indian deeds to turn in their deeds to the governor and be issued new deeds from Andros, and then, of course, by extension, from King James II. And so many uh, New Englanders uh, rejected this, and they were afraid that if they held their land titles from Andros and from the king, that then those titles could be taken away. And so they began to argue, uh, quite disingenuously in many cases, that, in fact, they had always... Uh, grounded their own land titles um, from Indian land deeds and indigenous land ownership, and so and it was just and right that they do this because, of course, the Indians were the real lords of the soil. They began. They argued to Andros, and so therefore, uh, Andros's demands were illegitimate um and uh and new englanders should be free from interference with their with their property titles which really uh king james and his his minions had no uh had no rights to interfere with and so um the uh so that was that was one aspect of this uh of this incentive and then the second was uh, once uh, the Wabanakis then uh, destroyed these these main frontier communities and in many cases sort of chased away claimers, uh, these sort of smallholders who were, were holding title from all sorts of different sources. Um, Massachusetts Bay Colony elites who who uh, ended up doing most of the, the buying of these these titles, uh, they they ended up deciding that the sort of the best way to consolidate all this would be to ground, future uh titles on the frontier uh primarily in uh, in indigenous land deeds uh, which we should add uh, had the the added benefit of uh indian land deeds tended to be much clearer than grants from say a distant monarch uh or one or somebody from uh uh from a issuing a patent from from something else who would never set foot in in america so um that was, this, this is what makes the, the 1680s, in that sense, a sort of pivotal turning point. And so what happened was that uh, Massachusetts received a new charter in 1692. Uh, and then they, uh, Massachusetts leaders decided that, uh, in some sense, Andrews did have a point, that they did want to, uh, to establish some regularity of land title throughout, uh, throughout Massachusetts, right? And so the, uh, the Massachusetts legislature passed a series of acts to settle the status of land titles once and for all, uh, and ideally protect them from outside interference as well. And so um, for our purposes, the most relevant one was a 1701 act that banned private purchase of Indian lands, Okay, um, and among other things, clarified that Indian purchases were legal when made for quote further confirmation of other lawful titles and possessions, which means presumably uh, royal grants, colony grants, uh, grants from towns, that sorts of things, right? And so, on the one hand, this act, uh, on its face, would appear to uh, to validate the uh, the arguments emanating from uh, from England, which was that uh, indigenous land rights. Uh, in contradiction of crown rights were illegal. But the Massachusetts legislature had no choice because the King's Privy Council could and did repeal any law contradicting royal sovereignty. In practice though, this act of 1701 was so vague, uh, it allowed Massachusetts to treat Indian deeds in Maine as valid all by themselves. And the language of this act never clarified what other lawful titles and possessions they met. And so what ended up happening was by the early 18th century, uh, Massachusetts leaders had, in effect, created this sort of creole system of property in which they purposely uh, kept it uh, vague to prevent royal interference. Now. They continued to make these arguments that the king had no right to interfere in their affairs thanks to them buying uh, the land from the Indians fairly. Uh, and this this argument reached its sort of uh, apex in the 1720s when Jeremiah Dummer, who was the agent of both Connecticut and Massachusetts, published his defense of the New England charters, uh, in which he argued that uh, Indians were the real owners of the land of the, of the land in, in the Americas, and therefore, By buying the land from the true lords of the soils, New Englanders had had full title of their land, and therefore uh, English monarchs could not interfere with it. Uh, And it also based New England claims uh, on their rights to be pretty much left alone with minimal interference on what became an enduring myth uh, among New Englanders of the virtuous New England colony. The idea that New Englanders were uniquely good and virtuous in their relations with indigenous people. And because they were doing such a good job of managing their relationships with Native Americans, uh, this was proof that they should be left alone to their own devices uh, as as befitted them. Now, this was of course, based on a very willful misreading of the history, uh, but what's important for our purposes is that uh, Massachusetts leaders uh, appeared to take it seriously and believe it. So um, where are we now? Sorry. Uh, ah, yes. So the uh, this rise of these land companies, right, uh, on this this sort of creative legal fictions, was then further solidified uh, because uh, these land companies were always worried that either uh, somebody from England or rival claimants in New England themselves, or for that matter, frontier squatters, were going to jeopardize their land claims. And so every threat led these large land speculators to cling even more tightly to their Indian land deeds as the best guarantor of their property.
2: Who are the Bosniak founders of land companies that purchased post-1713, so after 1713, abandoned land claims? And how did these companies and their patents function? In your responses, uh, please provide, if you can, examples of conflicts that erupted between absentee proprietors, colonists, and residents, and if possible, uh, distinguish between these three categories.
1: Sure. Uh, So first of all, uh, sort of Bostoniac is – my uh, my sort of borrowing of uh, of a term that uh, Lisa Brooks and others uh, other scholars have argued that that some Wabanakis used to describe New Englanders, uh, indicating that you know they originated in the village of Boston and then they got you know way out of control. And so because so much of the language we use to describe all of these encounters comes from the colonizers, this was at least a sort of small way to to acknowledge and add in a sort of uh, non-anglophone or English term to describe some of these people. right? So I used it to describe these these speculators who were themselves, of course, generally from Boston. Now, these were overwhelmingly men, we should add, although they did include some some widows and, and female relatives of these claimants. Uh, These were generally well-connected Boston gentlemen, and uh, they formed formed companies. And so I'll I'll use one company as an example. Uh, It was known as the the Pajepsket Proprietors. And the Pajepsket Proprietors uh, originally consisted of eight men uh, living primarily in Boston uh, who bought a patent in 1714, from the holder of Richard Wharton's 1684 purchase from Warumbee and uh, five other Sagamores around the present-day town of Brunswick, Maine. And the the original Pajepska proprietors included uh, names like Adam Winthrop, Thomas Hutchinson, and John Winthrop. Uh, And all of these names, we should add, right, are of families who either had been or would be governors of New England colonies. Uh, These eight... Gentlemen bought, uh, bought the, the patent for uh, £1,120 sterling total, or £140 each, uh, from Wharton's heirs uh, to pay his debts. Uh, but then the proprietors also bought off various colonists who had taken up on the lands covered by the patent, who probably had no idea that Wharton had claimed it in the first place. Now, the Pajewski proprietors had learned about which families claimed what because some of them had sat on the Committee of Eastern Claims. And this was a committee created by the Massachusetts legislature to sort out all of these essentially refugee claims uh, that were left hanging after this this generation of warfare on the the frontier. And so uh, it's important to note here that uh, any histories that talk about land speculators and uh, gr- and uh, agencies like the Massachusetts uh, House of Representatives as separate entities are are being disingenuous because the, the membership of these groups, overlapped considerably. And so it was because of their connections that these Pajepska proprietors were aware of what was going on, and they were able to influence legislation affecting the recolonization of the frontier. And so they kept extensive notes about uh, which individuals claimed which lands. And so then what they did is they they had meetings with these people, generally in Boston, and then they would tell them, "By the way, we have title to your land. You were living on somebody else's land. We're willing to give you consideration if you extinguish your claim." Uh, and most of these people did so. Uh, we should add some of them were even uh, some of the colonists were illiterate. They signed, uh, they signed these these quitclaim deeds, turning over their claims uh, with marks or X's. Okay. Now, once companies like the Pajewski proprietors acquired title, uh, whether it was secure or not. Uh, Their goal was fairly straightforward. They wanted to build a town or two on part of their patent, uh, which usually involved giving away some land to to early colonizers uh, or selling it cheap. And then they wanted to sell the surrounding land when it appreciated in value. Uh, And these these plans were generally successful. And so, for example, uh, John Ruck, one of the original Pajepska proprietors, he, showed, he uh, sold his one-eighth right in the company to John Wentworth for a thousand pounds, only 13 years after he had uh, paid 140 pounds in. Okay? So the Pajewska proprietors, uh, they, they established the company towns of Brunswick and Topsham on their patent, uh, and they, they supervised the, the initial establishment of these communities. Now, conflicts very quickly emerged because the goals of the land speculators and the goals of frontier colonists were different. The locals wanted to build stable communities. And to do that, they needed good land for themselves to farm on. They needed uh, a sufficient population to have a tax base and to be able to build roads and schools and the like. Whereas the land companies, they wanted to keep most of the good land. Uh, free of occupancy until it could appreciate in value and they could sell it at the highest profit possible. And so what began happening uh, in relatively short order is that colonists began to illegally grant lots to newcomers who would settle among them using the authority of the town meeting. Uh, And town meetings in New England by the 18th century did not have authority to uh, to grant land. And so these colonists decided that they had a right to do it anyway. Um, Or in other cases, in neighboring communities like Falmouth, which was not part of a a larger uh, land company, but these conflicts happened on it nevertheless, uh, the inhabitants of Falmouth formed their own uh, group of so-called resident proprietors who began to assume uh, the sort of extra-legal authority to admit newcomers. And so the frontier colonists justified what they were doing uh, through their own sort of interpretation of of English property law. And they were adhering to a a widely shared belief uh, among uh, among the early modern English, an ideal uh, which has become known as competency. And this was the idea that uh, many sort of ordinary English people, they sought to acquire enough land to be able to work for themselves and not have to be a tenant or an apprentice uh, or be dependent on somebody else and so the sort of modern equivalent would be uh, people who want to secure you know sort of a comfortable living for themselves and they're not trying to get rich they just don't want to have to live paycheck to paycheck and worry, worry for themselves and so for the frontier colonists the speculators began to just they, – they began to view the speculators as an obstacle to achieving their goal of competency on the frontier because these speculators were uh, were hogging all of the good land uh, through their own quest, not for competency, but for wealth.
2: For our listeners, please very briefly trace the history of the Franco-Wabanaki relationship from the 1690s through the very er- early 18th century. How and why did Wabanaki disappointment in this relationship, as well as English incursions, contribute to the strategy of containment, the Wabanaki strategy of containment that you alluded to earlier?
1: So the Dawnland existed in between the claims of of, of French Canada and then uh, New England. And um, for much of the by by the early 18th century, uh, the Wabanakis enjoyed uh, some sig- serious uh, bonds of religion with the French. Uh, the French uh, j- the French had been sending missionaries. I should clarify, and I should just say the the Catholic Church had been sending missionaries uh, to Wabanaki communities from the 1640s onwards. And so, a number of Wabanakis had converted to Catholicism uh, to various degrees. And so there were uh, Jesuit missionaries living in Wabanaki villages periodically throughout this this period of time. Uh, the Wabanakis also uh, traded with the French uh, in to various degrees. And then, because the French were not sending colonists into the Dawnland, uh, who were who were sort of intruding on on the Wabanaki. Uh, Subsistence networks. Uh, the French also became very valuable allies against New England by the 1680s, and so the uh, the French and Wabanakis uh, allied against New England uh, from 1688 until uh, until 1713. Uh, with uh, and so it was French assistance that allowed the Wabanaki forces to enjoy. Uh, some of the military success that they had, uh, especially during the the 1690s. But what happened, uh, I would argue that scholars have perhaps uh, overly idealized how close this relationship was and how productive it was. Uh, Even though they enjoyed military victories over uh, New England in the 1690s in particular, uh, the Wabanakis felt that they they were still uh, suffering greatly. Uh, during these wars. Um, And they did not generally feel that they were getting uh, sufficient support from the French in the terms of both direct military assistance. And then just as importantly, uh, the the French governors of Canada had promised to to supply uh, Wabanaki families with food in particular when, uh, when men were away fighting. And so as early as 1693, missionaries living with the Wabanakis reported that the Wabanakis were feeling desperate and unsupported. Um, The French naval power declined by the early 18th century, and this was directly relevant because without a strong navy, the French were really not able to protect their trade routes or their ability to supply their Wabanaki allies. The Wabanakis themselves, then, we should note, they supported France uh, in the the first decade of the 18th century, in large part out of calculation that they needed the French as allies as a potential buffer against New England. And so Wabanakis participating in this third round of warfare between the Wabanakis and New England was at least part uh, just as a gesture of support to their French allies as much as anything else. And so by 1713, they felt uh, ill-served by their, by their French allies. Uh, many Wabanakis had been living as refugees, as we mentioned before. And so then, to cap it all off, in 1713, they learned that, the, that France had ceded its claims to Acadia, which was modern-day uh, New Brunswick and, uh, and parts of Nova Scotia as well as uh, the the border was murky but even parts of modern day Maine. And so when the Wabanakis learned this, they felt uh, abandoned and sold out, especially since they argued that the French didn't even have rights to that land in the first place. And so uh, this behavior on the part of the French, coupled with their weakness, forced the Wabanakis to to reconsider their strategies and so after 1713, uh, growing numbers of Wabanakis began to argue that if they wanted to stay in the parts of the Dawnland the downland, uh, close to uh, these, uh, these English colonial towns, that they needed to reach a, a better accommodation with these English newcomers. And so that led to the Wabanaki strategy of containment, as well as... Um, what became a, a strategy of selective acknowledgement of, uh, of earlier 17th century deeds along the coast in exchange for uh, English cooperation in policing this new boundary between uh, Wabanaki lands um, and New England.
2: After 1715, how and why did proprietorial company establishment of new townships Rather than Wabanaki political economy and or English interpreters' roles in conveying ideas such as property and sovereignty, culminate in property damage by Wabanaki peoples, those Massachusetts kidnapping attempts, and the Fourth Anglo-Wabanaki War.
1: Quite simply, when companies like the Pachebski proprietors built towns where none had existed before in the Dawnland, this violated the Wabanaki understanding of the Treaty of Portsmouth, where the British could move to lands formerly settled. And so this is where the different understandings in part of just what, uh, what land ownership meant, right, uh, really came to the fore. And so for the, uh, for, uh, for the speculators, right, for Massachusetts leaders in general, uh, land title in and of itself, regardless of occupation, is what mattered. For the Wabanakis, that didn't make any sense. And so uh, these new towns, uh, the Wabanakis interpreted them as, as violations of these, these earlier agreements. Now, at the same time, the, uh, during these treaties, the handful of interpreters uh, throughout were tasked with conveying ideas such as property and sovereignty between the uh, the indigenous and, and Massachusetts participants. And here we should elaborate on who was doing the translating in these treaties. Uh, there were only a handful of interpreters throughout much of the 18th century century who were interpreting these, these treaties. Uh, these were uh, most prominently a trio of former prisoners of war. Uh, these were Uh, colonial boys who had been captured by the Wabanakis during the 1690s, who had lived in uh, indigenous communities for several years and learned the language, and then eventually been exchanged again. All of these men were partisan supporters of the Massachusetts Imperial Project. Uh, None of them could be considered in any sense neutral. And so we have uh, fairly convincing evidence that uh, these three men, uh, the most famous of of whom was named John Giles, uh, he published a narrative account of his captivity, uh, which he he published in the 1730s uh, about this. And so Giles and his colleagues uh, almost certainly did not interpret uh, English claims of sovereignty over the Indians in most of these exchanges. Uh, We know this because whenever the Wabanakis were actually informed of these English claims of sovereignty, they pushed back immediately and said, no, no, no. All we ever said was that the English king is king of England and that the the French king is king of France and that we are in charge of our own lives. We acknowledged he is a king, but not our king. And so, uh, at instances where these uh, proclamations of sovereignty are included in these documentations were almost certainly not translated directly to the Wabanakis. Okay, uh, ideas of property uh, are, are tricky, trickier to untangle. And so, the evidence from the the various uh, disputes and conferences that emerged after seventeen fifteen is that uh, both sides didn't really reconcile their uh, their, their interpretations of what happened. And so there was this incident in, uh, in, in roughly 1717 that can best be described as competitive hosting in which the Wabanakis invited the English to move, to return to their land, meaning Indian land. Uh, and the English, uh, the, the, I should say, the governor of Massachusetts said, thank you very much, you are welcome to come to our land. Uh, meaning the exact same land in question. And both sides sort of looked at each other and nodded and said, "Okay, then, and walked away. And that was the end of it. And so that's the sort of a a good encapsulation of the impasse of the 17-teens. And so increasingly, these new towns that the land companies were building uh, made sort of these misunderstandings uh, unsustainable. And so the Wabanakis began to demand payment, uh, or began to, uh, to chase off uh, people who they viewed as trespassers on their lands and waterways by 1720 or so. And Massachusetts uh, successive Massachusetts governors began demanding compensation or apologies for what they viewed as unwarranted aggression. Uh, but the Massachusetts governors didn't actually know uh, which Indians were doing this. And so they didn't really know who to blame or who to to ask for for recompense. And so first, what they do is um, they demand hostages to ensure good behavior. And surprisingly, uh, the the Indians do not interpret this, react as badly to this as you might expect they did, because Wabanakis and other Algonquin speakers did have a sort of tradition of, of sort of high profile diplomatic hostages, if you will uh, to ensure, uh, continuation of peace. Uh, but, uh, war breaks out again in 1722 because Massachusetts decided, uh, rather than the Wapanakis themselves being, uh, unhappy with what, uh, the, the government of Massachusetts Bay was doing, uh, Massachusetts blamed, uh, the resident French missionaries with the Indians. Uh, and so this was, of course, uh, fell in line with the, uh, the sort of intense uh, Catholic, anti-Catholic prejudice uh, in Massachusetts at the time anyway. And it also uh, fell in line with sort of the, the English prejudice that, well, we're so nice to our Indians, they argued among themselves. And it's only the these sort of sneaky papists who are putting the Indians up to this. And if we could just remove, especially this one vocal missionary, Father Sebastian Rawl, then everything will be fine. So they try to kidnap Rawl, and they send militia to the village of Norwich Walk uh, in what is a brazen violation of Wabanaki sovereignty. And this is a rare point when uh, Massachusetts actually does try and enforce sovereignty over the Wabanakis. Uh, And this immediately provokes indigenous retaliation and generates into the fourth war between the uh, Massachusetts and and the Wabanakis.
2: For our listeners... Please briefly assess Anglo Wabanaki interpretations of land deeds during uh, uh, Penobscot Secondary Chiefs Laurent's initial treaty negotiations, as well as the 1727 Dummers Treaty. What was the significance of 17th century deeds and Massachusetts' promises to submit all contested claims to a fair hearing in treaty print cultures?
1: So, this the, tra- the series of agreements that end this. Uh, period of warfare in the 1720s, and that uh, most participants uh, referred to as Dummer's Treaty afterwards, after the acting governor uh, of, of Massachusetts at the time, William Dummer. Uh, Dummer's Treaty is fascinating because it's one of these rare Indian treaties that appears to have worked. Um, and so I'll elaborate on what I mean. And so uh, Dummer's Treaty ends up being successful because both sides enter it believing that that things are seriously wrong. This fourth Anglo-Wabanaki war, uh, both sides interpret it as as, as really a disaster and neither side really wants this war. And so by 1725, both Massachusetts and the Wabanakis are just exhausted. And so uh, the Penobscots, one of the Wabanaki tribes, uh, take the initiative in trying to to bring about a negotiated settlement. And the result of the the series of meetings is what happens is that uh, Massachusetts leaders include the the land speculators in these negotiations. So I should say, of course, some of the Massachusetts leaders are themselves speculators, but the land companies send a delegation to what's now um, just outside the city of Portland, Maine, in 1726 and the Penobscots meet with a bunch of these commissioners who bring all of this documentary evidence that they can muster, uh, the series of Indian land deeds, trying to prove to uh, the assembled Indians that they have a right to the land that they claim. And so they want the Wabanakis to acknowledge all of these different deeds. And the assembled, uh, these are all Penobscots at the time, the assembled Penobscots look at them all and uh after sitting and listening to them being read out for more than a day, they say, "All right, enough, enough enough we've heard enough of these two and the as according to the transcript uh to last ourselves until the fall of next year, and they say what we're going to do is we will ratify all of these the relevant ones that we we choose to acknowledge uh together uh, uh, together at the end of these negotiations." And so they single out the Madaka Wando session as being uh, invalid, uh, but a number of other earlier deeds, they, they, they allow, they let, they let slide, and they say, okay. And so what they do is that instead of individually ratifying all these deeds, uh, the assembled Indians, they sign the entire transcript of the negotiations that uh, Lieutenant Governor Dummer conducts with them. And so uh, the transcript of the negotiations includes a, a written treaty that had initially been drafted in 1725 and is, is a fairly uh, harsh, uh, relatively uh, more of the same interpretation of the sort of indigenous submission to Massachusetts that had been repeated since 1693. And this part probably had not been read directly to the Indians, but it also includes a proclamation, a separate proclamation from Governor Dummer, in which he says uh, the only Indian land, the only uh, places that we will settle on indigenous lands will be places we have good title. And if we don't have good title to particular lands, then we will, we will disavow these claims and we will, uh, we will allow, uh, we, will, we will withdraw and so it's this promise of reciprocity in the form of this uh, proclamation from the governor. And it is read into the records. And so if Governor Dummer is uh, is attempting to separate his sort of verbal promises of good behavior from the sort of written treaty of, of different articles and whatnot, he fails because it is all recorded and then signed. And then uh, Massachusetts colony publishes the entire a thirty-some uh, page transcript of these negotiations, and then uh, this entire thing is read again uh, in a subsequent year to all assembled Wabanakis who hear the whole thing. Uh, and after hearing the proclamation and the sort of uh, and the rest of these, they agree that this sounds fair enough, and so they sign it. And so what this does, um, whether uh, whether Dummer intends it or not, is all of those individual land deeds that uh, the speculators had hoped the Indians would ratify, uh, they get jumbled together in Dummer's treaty, which then the land speculators begin to treat as one gigantic land deed in subsequent uh, legal disputes over title among themselves and with uh, frontier squatters and and everybody else. And so the, why does this matter? Well, the, the transcript of the treaty Contains all sorts of promises on behalf of Massachusetts to uh, of reciprocity for the Wabanakis, and so what this does is Dummer's Treaty grafts indigenous expectations of reciprocity onto the uh, the speculator's desire for land deeds as a form of receipt, and so it transforms; it adds these diplomatic expectations onto what the the speculators had hoped would be straightforward economic transactions. And once they begin relying on Dummer's treaty to validate their claims, the land speculators also become partisans of Massachusetts upholding its promises under the treaty because they worry that if the Wabanaki's disavow the treaty that that, uh, these speculators' own land claims will be jeopardized. And so in this case, then, the Massachusetts mania for writing everything down and publishing it ends up, uh, in this case, benefiting the indigenous participants, because what it ends up doing is it enshrines, uh, to a large extent... Their interpretation of what matters in treaties, which is the conversation and negotiations, it enshrines that at, in the printed record and then preserves it, uh, and 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 uh, and then turns these speculators into, for their own self-interested reasons, advocates of of, of indigenous land rights and, and and respect for this treaty.
2: Between seventeen twenty nine and seventeen thirty two, how and why did Anglo New England residents and proprietorial companies? Undermine Royal Surveyor's, uh, the Royal Surveyor David Dunbar's three townships. In addition, what indirect role did the Wabanakis play in conflicts between absentee proprietors, as well as their colonists, and Casco Bay Township residents?
1: So the uh, arrival of an ambitious Royal Surveyor named David Dunbar is the first test, uh, the first threat to this post Dummer's Treaty status quo, and so Dunbar. Uh, makes the argument that uh, the New England speculators and, and Massachusetts in general has just bungled the colonization of the Maine frontier and that they've mistreated the Indians and they haven't done anything. And so, therefore, uh, the land along the coast of Maine should be should be taken from them and given to none other than David Dunbar himself to, to, to form his own colony in. And so Dunbar uh, undertakes this sort of, his own scheme uh, to, to, form, to build his own townships on the Mid-Main coast. And so he manages to unite uh, pretty much everybody in Massachusetts against him. And so the speculators all send lawyers to, uh, to London to argue for why, for, Dun- for why Dunbar shouldn't be allowed to be there, and in part, they say, actually, look, we've been really nice to the Indians, and the only reason we haven't built more towns is because of all the wars that have happened on the frontier. Um, and they don't, of course, they don't address the contradiction between those two points, right? But what happens was uh, is is that the, um, the 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 board of trade uh, in in London ends up ruling in favor. Of these uh, of the speculators and the New Englanders in general, and saying that Dunbar does not have the right to to come in uh, to come in and to start creating his own sort of colony in the region, and so this this solidifies the importance in this sense of of Dunmer's Treaty for the speculators. So the Wabanakis themselves uh, they mattered in the sense that uh, they were they were aware of what Dunbar was doing and uh, and they were. They of course warned him not to get any ideas in his head about establishing any new towns, right? Uh, but also, it was Wabanaki either acknowledgment uh, or or condemnation of various older agreements that gave ammunition to both Dunbar and any sort of frontier squatters who wanted to challenge the speculators' titles, right? Uh, one of the one of the best ways, uh, one of the most favorite tactics of those who wished to challenged the supremacy of the land companies was to say that, well, your titles aren't very good because they were not fairly transacted. And so the Wabanakis were, were sort of constantly, even if they were not physically present, uh, they were an important sort of legal presence in, in some of these proceedings.
2: Please very briefly elucidate Massachusetts Provincial Governors Jonathan Belchers and the General Courts' 1736 annulment of St. George's land claims addressing Samuel Waldo's initial two conferences with uh, Penobscot factions. In the final analysis, what was the significance and insignificance of French engagement and Wabanaki policing of the re- remaining Donland?
1: So the 1736 showdown on the St. George's River was uh, the one of the greatest tests and then also the greatest success of the Domers Treaty-Anglo-Wabanaki relationship. Samuel Waldo was a speculator uh, claiming a title to much of the Penobscot land by virtue of the Madakawando Wando session. And so uh, Waldo recruited a bunch of Protestant Irish colonists who he hoped would, would populate his so-called Muscungus patent and make it valuable. Uh, and when his uh, colonists showed up, uh, the local Penobscots, of course, told them that they were not welcome and they did not have a right to be there. And so uh, Waldo held several conferences by himself with the Penobscots to try and convince them of his title. Uh, but then eventually the Penobscots uh, complained all the way to Governor Jonathan Belcher and the Massachusetts General Court. And so both the Penobscots and Waldo took their grievances to Boston before the General Court, who ruled in favor of of the Penobscots, and they said Dummer's treaty and other agreements make it clear that the Wando session was not valid, and that by the terms of this treaty, we have promised that if we can, if uh, if various Massachusetts claimers could not prove that they had good title, that they would leave, uh, and that is basically what happened: is that the, uh, the the Penobscots won, and so they allowed Waldo and a few of his colonists to stay on a sort of tiny corner. Of of their claim uh, on one side of the, the Saint George's River, but by and large, uh, the Penobscots got what they wanted out of this exchange. And so the uh, the role of the French in this case uh, is important by their absence. The French had, uh, as far as uh, as far as the evidence suggests, the French the Wabanakis didn't really bother to tell the French what was going on. Uh, the French were preoccupied with with other matters. And this was an issue of the, the Wabanakis relying on Dummer's treaty and their strategy of containment uh, quite apart uh, from whatever the French were up to in the 1730s, revealing in that sense also the sort of waning uh, French influence in the region.
2: How did the next Massachusetts provincial governor, and when I add Muscungus proprietor, William Shirley's advocacy for the purportedly defunct uh, Madakawando deed, as well as the War of Austrian Secession, the Wicasset Crisis, and the death of Laurent, all set the stage for the dissolution of the Anglo-Wabanaki relationship.
1: So the, uh, the assumption of William Shirley to the governorship of Massachusetts in 1741 really is a good example of how individuals can change history. And so uh, Shirley uh, had been Samuel Waldo's attorney. And when Waldo lost his dispute with the uh, the Penobscots, he went to England to lobby for Governor Jonathan Belcher's replacement. And Belcher had a talent for making enemies, and Waldo was only one of them. But uh, it was in part through Waldo's scheming, and in part uh, just through Shirley's uh, good connections, that Shirley himself managed to become governor of Massachusetts. And uh, what... Waldo cleverly paid Shirley for his, uh, for his efforts lobbying in England in Muscungus company shares. Shirley had two defining personal qualities. Uh, one was his relentless desire for, for wealth because he didn't have very much money, and the other was his uh, his jingoistic nature and, des- and and mistrust of the French and suspicion of of everything they were doing in, in the Americas, and really his desire for war with them, which would also, of course, bring him him glory as well. And so Shirley, as Governor of Massachusetts, uh, in his first meeting with the Wabanakis, he began speaking to them, not really as governor of Massachusetts, but as a muscongus proprietor, because he started talking about the Madoka Wando deed in ways that only Muscongus proprietors themselves did. And he began referring not to the official uh, uh, negotiations between Massachusetts and the Wabanakis in Boston, but rather to Waldo's private conferences with the uh, Penobscot, which had no legal standing whatsoever. And so Shirley, uh, through the, the 1740s, uh, began to sort of chip away at the Anglo-Wabanaki relationship. And so the outbreak of war between the, the French and the British empires in the mid-1740s, a conflict known as the, Austri- the War of Austrian Succession, uh, Shirley did not trust the, the Wabanakis to remain neutral, um, and under great pressure, um, they they gradually most of them did end up fighting in the war on the side of the French, uh, but without underlying underlying sort of property disputes motivating the conflict. Uh, the remarkable thing about their participation was sort of how perfunctory it is for the most part, and how quickly they resumed peace uh, peaceful relations with Massachusetts when the war was over. But Uh, What ended up happening was, is that there was a a further crisis on the frontier when after the the ratification of of peace in 1749, which was basically just ratification of Dummer's Treaty, uh, some of the Wabanaki delegation returning home was murdered by several sailors. And so this provoked another diplomatic crisis which thankfully for basically everybody involved, Shirley was not around for it. He had gone to England for a few years to uh, to advocate in a, a legal dispute in part against Samuel Waldo over money at this point. And so Shirley was not there. And so his uh, his lieutenant governor was able to, to uh, smooth things over. Uh, a sort of final uh, warrant, uh, crisis though that happened was as the Wiscasset, crisis was unfolding. Uh, Loran, who was the Penobscot speaker who had taken the lead in negotiating Dummer's treaty, as well as most subsequent negotiations, and had spoke for all assembled Wabanakis in many of these treaties. Uh, after helping to resolve this crisis, uh, Laurent died in the early 1750s. And we don't know exactly when, and we don't know exactly how, But we do know that in time for the sort of ultimate crisis on the Anglo-Wabanaki frontier in 1753 and 1754, uh, William Shirley himself mentioned that Laurent was dead and nobody contradicted him. And so all of these set the stage for the sort of final dissolution of this relationship in the early 1750s.
2: Now, the ending of this of your book is pretty unfortunate, also compelling. How and why did Samuel Goodwin and the Kennebec proprietors' 1741 location of the 1629-30 Plymouth patent, so-called Plymouth patent, challenge the validity of subsequent 17th century land deeds, which un- in turn unraveled Dummer's Treaty?
1: So the Kennebec proprietor story has these very unbelievable qualities to it. Uh, this land company, um, they they did not uh, they formed to take advantage of this copy of the sixteen uh, twenty nine and thirty Plymouth patent, which one of their agents found in an attic. Uh, and when he found this document and realized it was genuine, uh, these folks assembled and they were very wealthy and well connected. And they realized that uh, the best way to make their claim a reality was, of course, to undermine all of their rivals. And the, the distinguishing feature of the, the, the Plymouth claim was that it did not rest on any really uh, well-established Indian land sales. And so the Kennebec proprietors decided that they would just argue that Indian land deeds are themselves illegal. And they had the advantage of, technically, they were correct. And um, What they were really doing was pointing out in a certain sense that the emperor had no clothes and that the Massachusetts uh, property regime in Maine was in large part based on this vague uh, system of, of, of quasi-legal acceptance of Indian land deeds. Yes, they were based on the reality of Indian property rights, but Uh, the Massachusetts use of Indian land deeds was technically illegal in England. And so the Kennebec proprietors set about pointing this out, uh, which was a, and so as they did so, they also just began building towns on the Kennebec River and suing everybody left and right in order to, to make these claims a reality. And so the most important thing, though, the Kennebec proprietors did is they purchased the friendship of none other than William Shirley. They gave him secret shares in their company, as well as uh, Shirley, uh, whose uh, first wife had died. Uh, Shirley married uh, one of the daughters of, of one of the wealthier members of the Kennebec proprietors. Soon after, he agreed that Massachusetts would build several forts on Indian land to protect the aspirational uh, parts of the Kennebec patent. And so uh, having bought the loyalty of William Shirley, uh, Shirley and the proprietors informed the Wabanakis in 1754 that in fact, um, that much of the Kennebec River uh, had been purchased long ago And that this was, in fact, Massachusetts land. And they were referring to, uh, cynically enough, they were referring to generally not deeds even that were in the Kennebec possession, but rather some of these ambiguous deeds we talked about earlier in this podcast, the, the sort of fur trade agreements that had been largely bought up by the Clark and Lake proprietors, as well as uh, some other investors from the, the the Plymouth Colony that had been absorbed into Massachusetts, and nobody had taken these deeds seriously for years and years. The Clark and Lake heirs had given up on making them a reality after Dummer's War, but the Kennebec proprietors now were bringing them up, uh, and the the Indians were absolutely gobsmacked by this. They had no, they had not seen this coming. This was uh, they they were completely. Uh, Caught off guard by this, but by this point, uh, there were quite frankly just a lot of people in massachusetts and 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 now even in Maine compared to the number of Wabanakis. and Shirley brought eight hundred soldiers with him to these negotiations, and he just informed the Wabanakis that this is this is this will be what it's going to be um, and so Massachusetts built several expensive and quite honestly unnecessary forts. Uh, next to, uh, very close to the village of Walk, uh, And this resulted in the Wabanakis eventually uh, siding with the French in the wider global Seven Years' War and dragging the, the Dawnland frontier into yet another war uh, that most of the people living there uh, had no real interest in getting involved in. And this wider uh, frontier war, uh, this this wider Seven Years' War eventually destroyed French power in the Americas uh, which destroyed the Wabanaki's supply of arms and ammunition, and the sort of necessary component of their strategy of being able to preserve at least a credible threat of being able to to damage uh, the the frontier towns and investments of these these land companies if they did not respect indigenous claims.
2: Well, I, I have one more uh, final question. What's up for you next? What are you? Uh, are you going on vacation? Are you uh, working on another project that you can disclose? Yes.
1: Yeah, so the uh, the next project I'm working on is a collaborative uh, a collaborative volume uh, with Kristelin uh who's a uh, professor at the University of Southern Indiana, and uh, it is a collaborative volume, uh, tentatively co- titled "The Imperial Crisis." And what we're doing is we are arguing that the entire era between roughly 1675 and roughly 1725 should be interpreted as its own period of time in colonial history, uh, as well as Atlantic world history. And that rather than this era being part of a sort of larger gradual period of consolidation and growth in Anglophone colonies, that this was a period of violence and revolution um, and destabilization throughout much of the um, much of the Americas, the Caribbean, as well as Atlantic-facing Europe, and it should be uh, it should be treated as such. And so we're gathering together a team of scholars who specialize in in everywhere from new mexico to nova scotia to the caribbean uh, to scotland's imperial imperial ambitions and and new france and everything else and so we're hoping to reframe how early modernists think about this period of time and that this violence uh, was really crucial in shaping the the more familiar 18th century world as a more interconnected uh commercially Uh, integrated as well as anglophone world after
2: 1725 or so well we hope you remember the new books network history channel for that for that edited volume absolutely so uh thank you uh, professor saxine for being on the show today um so this the book is properties of empire indians colonists and land speculators on the new england frontier out earlier this year by nyu press On behalf of Professor Saxine, as well as the New Books Network's History and Native American Studies channels, this is Ryan Tripp, signing off, and I hope you all tune in next time.
1: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win?